There are a lot more of you here this morning than last week, I've noticed. I wonder why. I think that's pretty obvious, too. Thank you so much for coming. It was quite, a, quite bad weather last week here. Um, it's beautiful today. Fits the theme of Sunday. Fits well. If you look on the screens, you'll see this is the theme we're pursuing as we make our way toward uh, Resurrection Sunday, not many weeks from now. What we're going to be doing each week is we're going to study a day in the life of Jesus during the final week of his life before the cross. And so last week we looked at, at Sunday, which we typically call Palm Sunday, and uh, that's what we know, I think, pretty well. And then um, this week we're going to turn to Monday, which I'm going to call Melancholy Monday. Next week we'll be looking at Testy Tuesday. And that word you're going to see is exactly what should be the right word because it's full of tests. They're going to, the people who oppose Jesus are going to try every possible angle to get him to mess up. And uh, he passes the tests with incredible wisdom. And then he gives them a test of his own. And they fail miserably. Then Wacky Wednesday, it's a wacky day. Everyone does the wrong thing on that day. That day is not a day in which we know anything about what Jesus did. He probably rested. But it's what other people were doing that day that is very important. And then Maundy Thursday, that's of course the day in which Jesus called his disciples together and they celebrated the Passover meal together. And then Good Friday, of course, the day that Jesus was crucified. Now, um, Monday has got to be the, the worst day of the week. Uh, everyone thinks Monday is the worst day of the week. Let me show you why. This is just pulled off the internet. If each day is a gift, I'd like to know where I can return Mondays. Why is Monday so far from Friday and Friday so near to Monday? Maybe you've thought, keep calm and pretend it's not Monday. Monday. I can't even read that one, but it says, what does it say? Nothing a bit of shopping can't fix. That's Monday. Or this one. Hello, Monday. May I ask you a question? Why are you always back so quickly? Don't you have a hobby? I don't like Monday mornings. Or people who like Monday mornings. Or Mondays. Or mornings. Or people. I hope you don't, <laughs> I hope you don't have to work with this person. And then the famous carpenter song I remember growing up. Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus on Monday, and it got him down too. Because the things that happened in Jesus' life on the Monday before he was crucified were very, very, very sad. And we're going to see three events that took place on what I'm going to call Melancholy Monday. Just to give you a, a, a brief overview, the briefest account that we have is found in the book of Mark. And I'm going to read for you now Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry any merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. That's Mark's brief account. And when you put the four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it becomes a, a little bit wider. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at three events that happened in the life of Jesus on the final Monday of his life. The first one we know as the cursing of the fig tree. The second one we know as the cleansing of the temple. And the third one you might know as where Jesus spoke to the crowds, but especially some Greek people who came to see Jesus. So we're going to look at all three of those events this morning. We're going to start off with the cursing of the fig tree. Now, this is probably one of the stranger passages in all of the Gospels because um, you got to ask yourself, what does Jesus have against trees? Well, let's see what's going on in this passage as clearly as we can. This is called the cursing of the fig tree. And if you look in, in your picture there, whoever put this together did so well. The Mount of Olives is over here. Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, going down into this deep valley, and then up the other side into the temple courts. And in the process, he went past a fig tree, and that's where they do grow. There's an olive grove there, and there are trees that grow on this hillside. Here's what the Bible says. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And in that society, the, the leaves and the fruit of the fig tree came out at roughly the same time. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. They were not ripe at this point, but people still ate them. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, you got to wonder to yourself, you know, is Jesus in a bad mood? After all, it is Monday. So, um, no, that's not at all what's going on. This is a Bible commentary, a, common, a man who wrote commentaries. His name is D.A. Carson. This is what he said. That it was not the season for figs explains why Jesus went to this particular tree, which stood out because it was in leaf. Usually of a fig tree when the leaves and the fruit come out at the same time. So if the leaves are there, that's an indication that the fruit should be there as well. It's leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false. Jesus, unable to satisfy his hunger, saw the opportunity of teaching a memorable object lesson, and he cursed the tree. Not because it was not bearing fruit, whether in season or out but because it made a show of life that promised fruit, yet it was bearing none. Now, as an American, you know that one of our symbols, our national symbol, is the, um, is the eagle. But in, among Jewish people at the time, one of their national symbols was the fig tree. 
The Star of David was another one of their national symbols, but the fig tree was one of their symbols. That's how they symbolized their country, like maybe apple tree for us, you know, because mom and baseball and apple pie. That's a, a symbol of the United States of America. This is from the prophet Hosea. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. So the fig tree became, for the Jewish people, a symbol of their nation. Now the fig tree, if you've been, I've been to Israel many times, the figs there are abundant and they are delicious. They grow all over the place and you have to eat them. They're sweet as could be. And it was one of the symbols of the abundance of the nation of Israel, this land flowing with milk and honey. Its symbol was the fig tree. And of course, Jesus, on this last week of his life, was heading down the hill. He saw a fig tree full of leaves. As I said, the leaves and the fruit should appear at about the same time, full of leaves, advertising, this tree is full of fruit. He got to the tree. There's no fruit. But there are leaves. So he's going to teach a lesson. Here's also that the next part of that verse. But when they, that's the people of Israel back in Hosea's time, when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So here the nation of Israel was supposed to be like a fruitful fig tree. And instead of being a fruitful fig tree, that, that demonstrated the fruitfulness of God, they bowed down to idols and became a desecrated tree. That's what they became. This is what the prophet Hosea predicted. Now, I took these two pictures off the internet because the first one, of course, is our national symbol, the eagle, this magnificent bird, and I've seen them around this area, this white head with standing proud and and look at that one I found on the other side, all dirty with its beak all cut up. That would be the equivalent. If, if, if Jesus is, is, is with us at some point and, and there he sees on the, on the grounds here at First Baptist Church this beautiful eagle and says, come, come look at this. And there's this magnificent, huge, beautiful bird. And then sometime later he says, come here and look. And there sitting right outside the church is this one on the right. This magnificent bird that's all dirty, all cut up, all messed up. What Jesus is trying to say is this is what Israel is like today, in his day. This is the nation that God had set on a hill, supposed to be the light to the entire world. This is the nation which is supposed to teach the world what justice and righteousness looks like. This is the nation that has the true God who should show the world what godliness looks like. This is the nation that should show the world what a God who favors these people will produce for them. A land flowing with milk and honey. Figs everywhere. And guess what? They have the symbols of that godliness. They have this most magnificent temple, one of the most magnificent buildings of the world at that time. They have this holy place where people stream and are streaming at that time by the hundreds of thousands to Jerusalem. They have the show, but the reality is dead fruitlessness. You see, Monday is melancholy for Jesus because it's all about judgment. And here the judgment is against a people who advertised that they knew the true God, 
who bore no fruit of that at all in their lives. They said to the world, oh, we know the true God, and they did. But their lives bore no fruit at all. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible often calls God a farmer. And God is the farmer, and the main passage in the scriptures, you'll find this, is John chapter 15. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks, because that's part of the, the, it's called the vine and the branches. And in that passage, Jesus says over and over and over again, many times, that God is in the business of, of, of producing fruit. If the plant has no fruit at all, God cuts it off. If the plant is fruitful, God prunes it. And by the way, one of the indications that you're probably a Christian is you are pruned by God. Pruning isn't fun. It means you get cut. It means you hurt. But that's what God does to the plants, the, the, the branches that he loves. Because as you know, with pruning, if you have anything to do with our, uh, agriculture, that makes the plant more productive, makes the fruit better and stronger and bigger. God wants fruit. And then the passage, Jesus says, God wants you to have fruit. God wants you to have much fruit. God wants you to have more fruit. God wants you to have fruit that lasts forever. God is in the fruit business. He wants his children to have fruit. Now, when you don't have fruit, that's a problem. But there's one thing worse than not bearing fruit if you're a follower of God. And that is this advertising that you do follow God and you don't produce fruit. That's what Jesus encountered. You see, these people that he lived among, his fellow Jewish people at that time, weren't advertising, we're a bunch of godless people. No, no. They were advertising, we are the godly people of the world. And yet there was no fruit. In fact, there was the opposite of fruit. The people who were supposed to bear fruit were contemplating murder. Who are they going to kill? God. They're about ready to kill God, but they are acting as if they're the most pious people on earth. They're going to throw away every single principle of justice in order to kill an innocent man, all the while acting as if they're pious. That is sicko. Super sicko. And Jesus said, God will not tolerate it. The first thing Jesus says is, I, on this day, Melancholy Mondays, he said, God will judge fruitlessness. But there's a kind of fruitlessness that is especially evil in the eyes of God, namely fruitlessness that comes from people who act like they're really religiously pious. It drives him nuts. And so what did he do? He took it out on a tree. Now, you shouldn't be too bo bothered by that because it's better to take that off out on a tree than on a person. So Jesus takes it out on a tree, trying to teach a, a people who knew what fig trees were all about, that this was God's judgment on a nation that failed to bear fruit. This is what Jesus wrote, said in John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. God wants our lives to be fruitful. What is fruit? 
Well, there's a lot of fruit the Bible speaks of. There's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. There's the fruit of leading other people to Christ. There's the, there's the fruit of doing things in the name of Christ. Let your light so shine, Jesus said, that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's fruit. Fruit is what God is in the business of. He wants fruit from our lives. And so, I guess part of the application is, please, please bear fruit. But if you're not going to bear fruit, please don't act pious, because that makes it doubly bad. That's what Jesus is condemning here. Well, he goes down in the valley after he has failed to, to eat these figs, and he goes down in the valley, and he comes up the other side, goes through the gate, which would have been called the Golden Gate, walks right into the temple confines, and, uh, woo, it's not good. Now, if you know anything about how the temple was set up back then, it's an enormously big uh, area. It's, it's roughly square. It's not quite square. It's about 40 acres. It's quite big, way bigger than this church property. And you, you came in via a, a variety of gates, and then you came into the first court. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where people like myself were allowed during Jesus' day to come and worship the God of Israel. And many Gentiles came, particularly people that were called God-fearers. These are Gentile people who were, had not become proselytes to the Jewish religion, but they knew that the God of Israel was the true God. They didn't want to go through the rites of circumcision and following the laws. They still liked their bacon with their eggs in the morning, but they wanted... They knew that, that the God of Israel was the true God. So God allowed this whole big area called the court of the Gentiles. Then there was inside of that the court of the women. And then inside of that the court of the men. Then the court of the priests. And then the holy place. And then the holy of holies. And only the high priest one day a year could go into that area. So you had all these courts. Now in the court of the Gentiles the merchants had set up their booths. Now, this is ripe for abuse. Guess what happened? Three times a year, God had commanded his people that they had to come to Jerusalem to worship him. And whenever you came to Jerusalem, there's only one place you're allowed to do this. You had to bring a sacrifice with you, and you had to pay a temple tax. Now, let's say, since I live down in the Denver area, that um, three times a year, all the people from Wyoming had to go down to Mile High Stadium. And that's about how far it would be. You had to go down to Mile High Stadium, and you're not going to bring one of your sheep from Sheridan down to Mile High Stadium. So you just ride your horse down there to Mile High Stadium, and you get there, and you've got to buy a sheep at Mile High Stadium. Oh, you know what's going to happen. Have you ever been to Mile High Stadium? Do you know how much the Cokes cost? Eight bucks. You know how much those cost, those really cost? 25 cents. They jack up the price. And what if you try to bring in your own? You can't. They stop you. Now, add this. You can't use your money because Sheridan money doesn't work down at that Mile High Stadium. You have to use Denver money. And so you have to, you have to change your currency from U.S. currency into Denver money. And a little surcharge was added to it. Maybe not a little. And guess who gets this surcharge? The high priest's family. 
So you can imagine, they are stinking rich. Stinking rich. They're the richest people in the whole society because they have got it made in the shade. Now, where did they set up their booths where they're selling their animals? And now the poor come. The poor come, and all they can afford is some pigeons, but those pigeons cost a ton of money. So they've got to buy those pigeons. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're taking advantage of all these pilgrims who are coming with sincere motives to worship the true God because they're obeying the Holy Scriptures. When they get there, they're getting ripped off royally. Where? In God's holy place. Where? What part of it? In the court of the Gentiles. Now, what if you're a Gentile and you're there? You walk in, you can't even move. Because everywhere you go, there are all these people selling all this stuff and raking in a huge profit. Jesus walks in there. And let's see what he does. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now what is he doing? Now in this text of Scripture, there are three things that he is attacking. Maybe you can see them. The first of all is this house, this temple, is supposed to be a house of worship for all all the nations. Well, 99.9% .9 of the people of the world are Gentiles. And they come into the place that God had specifically reserved for the Gentiles. That's most of us. And you can't even get in there. Why? Because that's where they're doing all their business. You can't even walk through there to go to the Mount of Olives because it's so full of all the merchants. So first of all, what they had done with the temple is they had ousted the Gentiles. Secondly, they had commercialized it. They had commercialized, they had taken this place, which is supposed to be a house of prayer dedicated to God, where there's no class. The rich or poor don't matter, but they had now commercialized it so that they were reaping huge profits off of the poor pilgrims who were coming to worship God. They had commercialized it. But there's one other. You see, the word there, den of robbers, is a specific Greek word. It's called lestai. Lestai are, it's the same word as the thieves on the cross with Jesus. It means insurrectionists. He said, you, which has political overtones, the insurrectionists were the people who wanted to overthrow the Roman government because of their politics. So they had nationalized the temple, they had commercialized the temple, and they had politicized the temple. They had taken the temple, which was supposed to be for all the nations, and they said, no, this is just for us. You Gentiles, you got a little court here, but you aren't, we're not going to let you in here because we're going to fill the place up. This place, which is supposed to be the house of prayer, had turned into a commercial place where they reaped huge profits off the pilgrims. And they had turned it into a political place rather than a house of prayer. So instead of being a place where people prayed, it became a place where people prayed. 
You got my spelling. P-R-A-Y-E-D. It turned into a place where people, P-R-E-Y-E-D. They preyed on people. And Jesus is ticked. That's why he's melancholy. And by the way, whose house is this? It's his house. What if someone uh, is invited to your house and they walk in the house and they just come from a snowstorm, just, maybe it's all muddy, maybe let's say it's in April, their, foot, but their boots are full of mud, they get into your house and immediately they walk in on your beautiful carpet and then they put their feet up on your chairs and then they have all their friends come in they trash your house. Would it tick you off a little bit? You don't let people come in and trash your house. And if they do, there's something horribly wrong with those people. Well, they're trashing Jesus' house. And what do you expect him to do? Say, oh, isn't this sweet? I love everybody. No. He says, this is wrong. This is my father's house. This is my house. This is not a place where you prey on people. Now, they desecrated the worship of God's house. Let me ask you a question. You know, the, the worldview and the lifestyle of Christians in America today is statistically identical to those who would never darken the door of a church. The statistics tell us that we're simply clones of our culture. That's all we are. With a veneer of religion thrown in. What do you think Jesus would think of that? <laughs> he said, oh, that's cool. At least they go to church. I don't think so. In many places today in America, Christianity and the worship of Jesus Christ resembles a business far more than it does a community of people making disciples of Jesus. Far more. It's a business. What do you think Jesus would do? If he walked into here, and and thankfully I don't see this here, but if, if, you know, basically it's a business. We're running a business here. Make money, build nice buildings. He might get out of whip. We Christians in America today have been accused, rightly or wrongly, of being today primarily a political lobbying group. Listen to your news. Christians, especially evangelicals today, are considered by our culture to be primarily a political lobbying group. If that's true, I'm done. I'm quitting. I am not in a political lobbying group. I'm a member of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we let politics strip away the gospel, do you think Jesus wouldn't get out his whip? I think so. He's not going to tolerate... This building, when it was built, was built and dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a business. This is not a place of politics. This is a place devoted, dedicated to Jesus. It's his ground. It's his house. We dare not ever nationalize it, commercialize it, or politicize it. Because when we do, our Lord might not like it because he judged the Jewish people when they did that with his father's house 
But now the last event on this melancholy Monday is an interesting one. We find this in the Gospel of John. That's the only place that tells us about it. Remember, we, I talked about the court of the Gentiles? Well, there were some Gentiles in that, in that court, and they were Greeks. And they wanted to see Jesus. Maybe they had heard, they saw Jesus with his whip taking this temple and saying, this is my father's house. And he said, this is supposed to be a house for all the nations. And they said, what did he say? Did he say all the nations? He did. Do you think we could talk to him? Because we're Greeks. Let's see what the Bible says. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip. Philip is a Greek name, by the way, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now, what is Jesus going to do? We don't know, because he doesn't do anything. John doesn't tell us what Jesus did. What Jesus is going to do now is maybe the Greeks are there. Maybe they got an audience with Jesus. We don't know. But what we do know is Jesus is now going to launch into a soliloquy. And here it goes. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man. He doesn't say to be crucified, but to be glorified. We don't call it Bad Friday, we call it Good Friday. What happened was horribly bad, but the result was the, the world's greatest good. And Jesus said, my crucifixion is God's glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, in the Christian realm, in the realm of the spirit, death is what produces life. And if you don't die, you can't come alive. If you don't reckon with your sin and give your sin to Jesus and let his righteousness be given to you, you, you can't live. He said it's like a seed. You put that seed into the ground as a dead little thing and... Put some water on it and it, it grows to life. you got to die first. The man who loves his life will lose it. If you live your life and all you want to do is to try to make things work for yourself, in this world you will die eternally. But the one who hates his life, he doesn't mean you have to hate yourself, but by comparison, this life to the life Jesus offers for eternity, you'll keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So that's what Jesus says, but he keeps going. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That's what I'd say. If I was in Jesus' condition, I'd say, hey, get me out of this. He says, no. It was for this very hour I came to this world. Father, I don't want to bypass the cross. I want you to glorify your name. That's my desire. Then a voice came from heaven three times. Three times the Bible records that God spoke 
in the presence of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. On his way to Jerusalem to die, God spoke again. And now a third time, a voice out of heaven said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd was there and heard. It said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. They didn't quite know what was going on. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on a cross. And then he was going to be lifted out of a grave. And then he was going to be lifted up out of this earth when he ascended. And then he was going to be lifted up to the right hand of God the Father. What he's about to face is a lifting up. He said, when I'm lifted up, that will be the ultimate sign that we will give to the world that I am who I said I am. The crowd spoke. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how do you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Because they thought, believed the Son of Man, they knew from the book of Daniel, was the Messiah, and they believed the Messiah would live forever. And you're now saying the Son of Man, who you call yourself, is going to be killed on a cross. Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. While you have the light before darkness overtakes you, the man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Remember, there was a warrant out for his arrest, and they were going to kill him. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I have spoken will condemn him on the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus said, during my brief time here on this earth, I have given sufficient evidence for people to know who I am to believe in me. I am the light. I came into this world by supernatural birth. I lived my life without sin. I did miracle after miracle. I am soon going to die on the cross and you will never see anyone die like me. Then I will walk out of a grave and I will ascend to heaven. What more do you need? What more could God ever show human beings? You have sufficient evidence to believe that I am who I said I am. In fact, I am. That's who I am. That's what he said. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Well, there's the end of Melancholy Monday. Three events. First one, 
was he is going to judge the people because of their fruitlessness. But it's worse than being fruitless. They were fruitless, though they gave off an air of religion. And that's particularly offensive to God. And so the obvious question for us is, does my life bear fruit? Now don't get too down on yourself. Because I think we bear a lot more fruit than we think we do sometimes. But you see, the Bible says, Paul said that if the Holy Spirit lives in us, out of our lives should come good things. We should be people who are people who, who live to love other people. When, when we are, are forced to suffer, we, we understand God is up to something, and we, don't, we chafe at it. We don't like it, but we don't reject it. We're people of joy. Our lives are characterized by joy and peace. Why? We live in a world that's kind of a mess in a lot of ways, but we know who holds the future. God has never gotten off the throne. He's never going to get off, and Jesus is going to return one day. Of all people, we ought to be the people of peace. Gentleness. We don't have to respond to people in kind because our ego is not affected. If people think we're, we're stupid, dumb, whatever it may be, okay. What does God think? You're the apple of his eye. What do you care if somebody thinks you're a jerk? If God thinks you're the apple of his eye, that's fruit. Fruit. Some of you are good about this. You're constantly reaching out to people to show and to tell about the love of Jesus. Oh, that's good fruit. It's very good fruit. Some of you, many of you here, you take steps of faith. You reach out to strangers you don't even know. You do things that, that because you're prompted by Jesus to do them. That's fruit. God wants fruit. That's one of the reasons for which he saved us. He didn't just save us to give us a life insurance policy. He saved us so that we could bear fruit while we live on this earth. And God wants fruit. But he also is very much against disrespect. Disrespect of holy worship. When we nationalize, commercialize, or politicize holy worship, God is disrespected. When we come to his house, this is his house, we dedicated it to Jesus. We, we don't turn this into a place where only the in people are, are invited. We don't turn this into a place where you got to pay money to be accepted or to be in a certain boards in the church. We don't turn this into a place where we primarily talk about politics. We talk about the gospel. We talk about Jesus. We talk about the living God. Otherwise, we've disrespected God. This is his house. And the last, unbelief. Because that's ultimately going to be the worst judgment of all. Because God says, I have given you and all human beings ample evidence of who I am. Now your choice is, will you believe or not? And so on Melancholy Monday, Jesus fit the day. It was a day of judgment. When he said, these are what I will judge. I will judge fruitlessness. I will judge disrespect of my father's house. And I will judge those who refuse to believe in me. Let's pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that there's not a single person in this body today that could be rightly accused of any of these. My prayer is the exact opposite of each one, that by your Holy Spirit we may be people whose lives bear fruit. We know who we are. We all sin. In fact, we choose to sin. We're not proud of that. But that you could bring fruit of our lives is one of the greatest joys of this world. May you make us fruitful. And Heavenly Father, woe be it to us if we desecrate your house or your holy worship. And we're very prone to it. I pray, Heavenly Father, we be the opposite. People who, when we come corporately to worship you, it's full of sincerity and truth. And Heavenly Father, may there please, by your Holy Spirit, be none who haven't bowed their knee before Jesus. If there's anyone here today, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would specially bring them to the cross of Jesus. May we all come to know Jesus as our Savior because you've made it clear that you're the one. I would pray that on behalf of all of us here. And I thank you for Jesus. As we pray in his name, amen. Please stand. For our benediction today, take this one from the Old Testament. May God bless you and keep you. May God make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And as you leave this place, may you go in the grace, the peace, the joy, and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.